The scripture reading today is from Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 19 through 33. Hear the word of the Lord. Then, just as the Lord our God had ordered us, we set out from Horeb and went through all that great and terrible wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites until we reached Kadesh Barnea. I said to you, you have reached the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has given the land to you. Go up, take possession, as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has promised you. Do not fear or be dismayed. All of you came to me and said, let us send men ahead of us to explore the land for us and bring back a report to us regarding the route by which we should go up and the cities we will come to. The plan seemed good to me, and I selected 12 of you, one from each tribe. They set out and went up into the hill country, and when they reached the valley of Eshkol, they spied it out and gathered some of the land's produce, which they brought down to us. They brought back a report to us and said, it is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. But you were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You grumbled in your tents and said, it is because the Lord hates us that he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to hand us over to the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we headed? Our kindred have made our hearts melt by reporting, the people are stronger and taller than we. The cities are large and fortified up to heaven. We actually saw there the offspring of the Anakim. I said to you, have no dread or fear of them. The Lord your God who goes before you is the one who will fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your very eyes. And in the wilderness, where you saw how the Lord your God carried you, just as one carries a child, all the way that you traveled until you reached this place. But in spite of this, you have no trust in the Lord your God, who goes before you on the way to seek out a place for you to camp, in fire by night and in cloud by day, to show you the route you should take. The word of the Lord. Let's bow before God in prayer. Let us pray. Almighty God, in the stillness of this moment, we need to hear a word from you. You have promised to speak to us through your creation, through your word in Holy Scripture through the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ and the power of his Spirit. So take the word that we have read and the words that are now spoken and grant to each of us a word from you that will lead us ever closer to the land that you promise us. Hear our prayer. In Christ's name we ask this. Amen. So we've come to the beginning of the summer and with this transition with 
folks back in the sanctuary as well as so many of you online, we begin a new series of sermons in which I'm going to be selecting passages from one of the books of the Old Testament, in fact, the fifth book in the Old Testament, and that book is the book of Deuteronomy from which we've just heard. This is probably not a familiar book to most of us, but it is a book that was very familiar to our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, he knew it by heart. At least we knew, no, he knew some of it by heart, and perhaps he knew far more of it by heart, because when he was in the wilderness, when he was in the desert, when he was being tempted and tested by the devil at the beginning of his ministry, he did not have his pocket Bible with him. Nobody did in those days, but he carried it in his head, and he refuted the temptations and the tests of the devil by quoting Scripture. And the Scripture that Jesus quoted, well, it came from, and you can guess it, it came from the book of Deuteronomy. So this is Jesus' book, as it were. Chapter 8, verse 3, God wants us to know that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, straight from Deuteronomy. Chapter 6, you shall only worship and serve the Lord your God. Chapter 6, the first one was from chapter 8, chapter 6. Chapter 6, again, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So this is a book that Jesus knew, and it's a wonderful book for us to begin to think about there are within the book a number of passages which are of surprising power and beauty. And those who read the book for the first time are often stunned by what they read there. In fact, one of the passages of great beauty is the passage with which I began the service, what we call the Shema, which is sort of like the Apostles' Creed within Judaism, a foundational statement of faith. Remember these words, Hero Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and, and uh, with all your strength. And once again, Jesus quotes this. He knows this by heart. And then that passage goes on to say this. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children. Talk about them when you are at home, when you're away, when you lie down, when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Here is the beginning of our admonition to teach the faith, to pass on our, our faith to our families, not just to keep it to ourselves, but to pass it on. So there are passages in Deuteronomy of great power and beauty, and we're going to focus on some of those. But what I need to say today is this, that at the same time, this is an ancient book, and some parts of Deuteronomy are really hard and tough to stomach. And you may know the kind of thing that I'm going to mention as the children of Israel enter the promised land, having been set free after 400 years of slavery, set free from bondage in Egypt. As they begin to enter the promised land, they put all the inhabitants to death by the sword, the native people. They slaughter them all, and they are told to do this by, well, by God. God tells them to do it. And this kind of action, this kind of word, bothers me, probably bothers you, probably bothers a lot of people. And some people say, well, you just can't read these books anymore. They're old, they're out of date. There's nothing in here for us. So this is an important difficulty to mention. And as I begin the series, I want to mention it right now. Don't know if I'll resolve the problem for uh, you or for anyone else. I'm not sure that anybody has a great resolution to this problem, but I do want to say some things 
uh, at the outset that may set these passages of terror, and that's what they are, in some kind of a context for you to think about. So, to begin with, before we get to our passage, uh, specifically, to begin with, these passages of terror that we find in the Old Testament and that we find in the book of Deuteronomy. Three things I want to say. The first is this. Let's not be naive. Let's not be naive. There were some really bad people alive and active in those days, just as there are today, but there were some really bad people. Child sacrifice was the norm in that part of the world where the children of Israel were going. Religious prostitution and who knows what else was absolutely rampant. No jails, no rehab centers. It was a dog-eat-dog world. It was kill your enemies before they killed you. So think ISIS. Think ISIS all over that part of the world. Or think Wild West. I saw this past week again, the Magnificent Seven. Wild West, it's dog-eat-dog out there. Or The Hunger Games, or numerous other movies of a dystopian world which we think of as fiction, but in history, mm, at different times, sadly, absolute fact. So let's not be an eye. Eve, evil, does exist. That's the first thing. The second thing is this, it's about God. It's about who God is for us. The 16th century reformers spoke about God's accommodation to us. God's accommodation to us. God speaks to us and accommodates us as we are. God doesn't address you and me as if we lived in the 23rd century or in the 16th century. When we say that God speaks to us, God speaks to us right now, and there are some things which will take place in the future or have in the past. If God were to refer to them, we would have no clue what God was saying. God speaks to us right now in our human situation. And that human situation is always, always permeated by sin and by imperfection and by huge amounts of ignorance, no matter how much we know, huge amounts of ignorance. And God doesn't wait for us to repent or reach a certain level of moral rectitude or knowledge before God comes to us. But thank God, God speaks to us where we are, meets us where we are. Think of Jesus going to eat at the home of Zacchaeus, the tax collector. He's thieving. He's cruel. He treats people despicably. And people are furious that Jesus should go in to be with him. Don't you know who he is? Jesus still goes there. Or the story that Jesus told of the prodigal son, the father runs to welcome his younger son home. And the older brother is furious. Don't you know what he has done? Can't you see this? You are being immoral and welcoming him in this particular kind of way. But that's what God does. God meets us where we are, and there's always the accusation of God compromising. At that point, Jesus compromising. In fact, people did say about Jesus, yeah, he was compromising at that moment. But that's what the love of God does. It accommodates itself to us where we are. We're all caught in the mire, and there is no room, no room for any generation to have self-righteousness. And I think this is really important as we look at all of our history anew, and I think we need to. Always history needs to be looked at afresh. But there's never room for self-righteousness as if we have arrived, 
in a way that others have not. In a hundred years, people will look back at us and say, how could they do that? How could they think that way? So we need to remember God's accommodation to us in the second place. And then the third thing we need to remember, of course, is the teaching of Jesus himself. The teaching of Jesus himself. There is progress in God's revelation about how we are to live morally and spiritually in the presence of the living God. So we don't do that kind of thing in the name of God anymore. We don't think that way anymore. We have been taught, but we don't always listen to this, to love our enemies. That's what we have been taught. We don't do it very well on a political level. We don't do it very well on a racial level. We don't do it very well in many levels. But that is the teaching that we have been given through our Lord Jesus Christ. And pray for them, says Jesus. And that teaching supersedes whatever else there is beforehand. That's for us. That's for us today that we follow. And Jesus, he knows about Deuteronomy. He knows it in his head. He knows the bad parts are there. And he says, but I say to you, and his is the voice that we are to listen to most. He, by the way, would say, and remember he quotes Deuteronomy in the midst of a spiritual battle, that the spiritual interpretation of Deuteronomy would still be valid. There is a battle going on between good and evil, and we have been called to fight it. So these three things, no room for naivety. Evil is real. God, thank God, by God's grace, accommodates God's self to us. And Jesus updates the teaching that we follow. Maybe it doesn't resolve everything, but I hope these are perspectives that will help you a little bit, and you can find them if you download the sermon notes. I've written that out for you to go back and reflect on. So having said that, let's move on to the book of Deuteronomy as a whole and set the scene for today and for the weeks ahead. The actual name of the book, Deuteronomy, simply means second law or second teaching, deuteronomos in Greek, second, and then law or teaching, and it takes the form of an extended speech of Moses in which Moses stands at the edge of the promised land 40 years after the people of Israel have escaped from slavery in Egypt. And Moses repeats for a second time. He recaps, tells for a second time, much of the story of Israel's travel and experience, their triumphs and their failures over the years as they've wandered from slavery towards the promised land. So it's a second telling of the story. And you can read much of Deuteronomy in the first books of Moses, and especially the book of Numbers that precedes Deuteronomy. But Moses is the one telling the story. It is from his perspective, and his goal is to warn God's people that life is a perpetual struggle. Life is a perpetual struggle. You get over one thing, and there's another. And then also to encourage them to remain faithful just as God, through all those struggles, remains faithful to us. And that's really the precise background for our story today, in which Moses brings back to mind one incident in particular through which he makes his point. This is a story that's told, first of all, uh, in the book of Numbers in chapters 13 and 14. The story is this. Remember from our scripture reading. Not long after the Israelites had been 
freed from slavery in Egypt. And not long after, they've received the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, which in the book of Deuteronomy is always called Mount Horeb. They move swiftly north to the promised land, the land that God has promised to give them. And they're right at the edge of the land. And this is happening so quickly. They've just been freed from slavery and they're almost at their destination. And they say, let's send out some scouts to check out the land and to see what trouble lies ahead of us. And this seems to God, it seems to Moses, like a good idea to do. So that's exactly what they do. And they send an advance party into the promised land to check things out. And that party returns with their report. And it's a mixed report. It's a mixed report. On the one hand, they're optimistic. The scouts bring back fruit from the land, grapes and pomegranates and figs. And they tell the people, hey, it's a land that is flowing with milk and honey. But on the other hand, they're pessimistic because the present inhabitants are stronger and taller than they are. And there are cities there, and they are large, and they are fortified. And the people who live there, well, they are giants. That's how they seem to the people. Not just occasional giants like Goliath and, and David, but a race of giants, the descendants of somebody called Anak. And they seem to them to be huge. These are people who've spread terror throughout the ancient world. And as Moses retells the story, he reminds the people that in the midst of the optimism and the pessimism, the pessimism won out. The pessimism won out, spread like a cancer, and won the day. And he says at verse 26 in our passage, you were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You grumbled in your tents and said, it is because the Lord hates us that he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to hand us over to the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we headed? Our kindred have made our hearts melt. So they were stuck. They were stuck. They were stuck in their minds and in their thinking, and they were stuck physically as well. The consequences were absolutely enormous. There was no forward motion from that point on for another 40 years. Life went round and round in circles. The moment of opportunity was lost. They were so close. But from that moment on, when they listened to one side of the report and not the other, their lives became absolutely stuck. And this can happen so easily. It can happen so quickly to any of us. Loss of confidence and loss of nerve. The dark side dominating the bright side. The cup half empty, not half full. And then the result, just this kind of spiral round and round in circles and generally going down. And in the case of Israel, this pessimistic choice was not only sad, I mean desperately sad, but it was in fact simply stunning, absolutely stunning. With the news of the fortified cities, the gigantic enemies, the people grumbling, stopping believing in God, and in fact coming to believe that God hated them. Did you hear those words? You hate us. It's not just that God doesn't love you. God hates us wants to destroy us, the absurd began to enter their hearts and their minds and take root. All the more absurd because of what had just happened a very short while before. They had seen with their eyes God's deliverance 
from all the powers of Egypt, the greatest nation on the earth at that time. They had known fear as they had escaped from Egypt and were stuck at the Red Sea in a cul-de-sac as the armies of the Egyptians came upon them. That fear, yeah, I think they were justified then. They'd just come out of slavery. They hadn't seen anything. They had no clue what was happening. And then Moses said, stop, be still, and watch for the hand of the Lord. And then they felt the strong east wind that God sent. And then they watched as the sea began to push back and the dry ground appear. And then they traveled. They, they who were now fearful, they traveled on dry ground to safety and they watched their enemies drown. And more than that, when they got to the other side and they found they were in the middle of nowhere, they saw God's hand at work providing for them the manna that they needed, the food in the wilderness out of nowhere supplying their need. So they had these huge and recent signs of God's love and power and faithfulness for them that God had no intention of hating or destroying them. But in this moment, just like that, when push came to shove, that was not what they chose to remember. That was not what they chose to allow to fill their minds. They chose fear over faith. And it is so easy for us humans to do. Remember the story in the Gospels of Simon Peter watching Jesus walking on the water. Jesus comes towards the boat and the disciples think that it's a ghost and they wonder what in the world is happening and Simon Peter says, Lord, if this is you, call me out. This is how the story goes. When the disciples saw Jesus walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, it's a ghost. They cried out in fear. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So, Peter got out of the boat, started walking on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he noticed the strong wind, eyes off Jesus, when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, but also reprimanded him, saying to him and to the others, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Oh, what might have been if he hadn't doubted, but he did. Jesus, though, saved him anyway, pulled him in, but let him know as Moses wanted to let the people know that that's not the way that God wants us to live. What we choose to look at is important. What we choose to remember is important. What we choose to fear or trust is important. And not just what, but who we choose to look at, who we choose to remember, who we choose to trust and fear in the right way. I've shared with many of you before, but think it's appropriate today to share again the fear that I had when I was starting out, uh, thinking about the ministry, the fear I had of public speaking when I was in my teens and when I was in my 20s. And from time to time, I still feel it, not quite as it once was, but back then I would panic for weeks if I'd been asked to say anything at any kind of a meeting in public. And then I began to think, 
that God might be calling me into the ministry, and the panic grew larger. And then, out of the blue, some people began to challenge me to think of this, and the panic grew even deeper. Instead of saying, with great faith, as Moses would have wanted me to do, if this is what God wants, if this is the promised land that God wants to lead me to, then God will provide the gifts that I need. For two years, I went in the opposite direction. Glad it wasn't 40 years, but it was two years, wandering around, at least in the wilderness. The path that the Israelites followed. In fact, I believe, and this is why I mention it, I remember thinking this, that God wanted to set me up in order to pull me down. I thought those thoughts, that God wanted to make me miserable. At that stage in my Christian life, that was what I thought, that was God was going to put me to shame in front of crowds of people. What I say now is, being put to shame in front of crowds of people so often I don't care about it anymore. But at that time, it just scared me to death. It was painful, literally painful. But the sense of call would not go away. And on one occasion, while I was assisting with a student-led service of worship in a church, I heard a voice in my head, and I've only really heard this maybe two or three times. I don't know if it was God, but if it was God, this is what God said. God said, David, you idiot. If you weren't so afraid, you might enjoy what God has for you to do. I could hear that as clear as could be. So when the opportunity came to spend a summer at a small church in Canada, Nova Scotia, where I would be preaching and I'd never preached in my life before, I knew I had to do it or I would be miserable for the rest of my life. So I told nobody in Scotland, I was in Scotland at the time, told nobody in Scotland that I was going to do this except for one person. That one person happened to be my university classmate and Christian brother, Rob Norris, who's the retired pastor, Fourth Presbyterian Church. We both ended up here in the Washington area, who listened to my very first sermon in a small Baptist church on a Sunday evening when nobody else was there. And he critiqued my sermon for me. That made things just a little bit worse when he did that. But I'd been through it once, and then I got on a plane. And I flew to Canada, and I said to myself, nobody knows I'm going here, and if I mess up, I'll just get on a plane the next day, and I'll come back, and we'll forget the whole incident. Well, you can sort of guess what happened there. I found out that as I preached that first Sunday, that maybe that was true. This was what God wanted me to do, and that my greatest joy would be found in doing the very thing that I fear. And I'm eternally grateful for the Scripture and for the people who pushed me in that direction. God's call for each of us is different, but we all have a future that God wants to lead us into. For each of us, there is a promised land that God wants us to enter. Jesus calls it abundant life. But there will always be obstacles between here and there, giants, fortified cities of one kind or another, real or imaginary. And we will always have choices to make. We can look at all those things and say, whoa, not going there. Or we can keep our eyes on God made known in Jesus and say, Lord, if that's where you want me to be, lead me. That will be the best place for me. I believe that profoundly and trust you do too. 
Let us bow before God in worship. Holy God, who promises to guide us, help us never to take your guidance for granted, but to be amazed that you would stretch out your hand to lead us and to conquer things we never could conquer, certainly by ourselves. So lead, so guide, and so bless, and make us a blessing for Christ's sake. Amen.